now, Father, as we come once again to your precious holy word, we pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We pray that you would, by your spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. And Father, I pray as we meditate on these truths that our hearts would be greatly encouraged. If necessary, Father, that our souls would be deeply convicted. And Lord, that you would cause us to realize the greatness, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the provision that you have made for us in Christ, that we may live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects. And Father, we would delight to do so. We want to grow. We don't want to be stagnant in our relationship to Christ. We don't want to be stagnant in our understanding of the word. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come and enlighten our hearts this morning. For we pray by the authority of Jesus' name. Over the years of my ministry here at Calvary Bible Church, many people have asked me, Pastor Dan, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? And there have been many occasions when I've asked you the same question. What can I pray about for you this week? And we all know the experience of finding ourselves kind of looking at the floor, looking into the clouds, looking at the clock, trying to find something in the deep corridors and crevices of our mind that we might need prayer for, and we can't think of anything to ask anyone to pray about us for. Maybe we're just too proud, or maybe we're just not in touch with what we need, or maybe we just don't want anyone to know that we have a need. The job seems to be going pretty well. The marriage isn't too bad, and if it were, we'd be too embarrassed to say so. Perhaps school seems to be clicking right along, and everyone seems to be in pretty good health, and so what's there to pray for? Well, this morning I want to answer that question. You want to know how you can pray for me? You want to know how you can pray for my wife, my children? Pray what the Apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and the love you have for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And this is his prayer, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now there's more, but we'll stop there. Because you know I can't preach that many verses in one sermon. You want to know how you can pray for me? Number one, pray that I would grow in my knowledge of God. On one occasion, Job asked, Job 11, verse 7, 
Can a man, by searching, find out God? Paul believed not only that we could, but that we must. We must find him. In fact, God has put it in the hearts of every man to find him and to know him. The attempt to discover God has been the quest of mankind even from the beginning. The Greek philosophers attempted it. The Romans had a whole complex system of relating to God. Many gods, they were polytheists. And every church known to man, every culture that is known to man since the very beginning had some sort of theology explaining their understanding of God and how to make him happy or how to dissuade his wrath. One of the fundamental attributes of man is is the question of God. And we are perpetually restless until we discover the answer. We are perpetually restless in our lives until we answer the question, what about God? Because every other question is answered at the root with the answer to that question. As Blaise Pascal postulated, there is within the heart of every man a God-shaped vacuum that only Jesus Christ can fill. That is, there is in man an innate sense of consciousness that there is a God. In fact, the Bible confirms this when Paul, writing to the Romans, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because, listen, that which was known about God is evident within them. How do we know that? For, Paul says, God made it evident to them. To who, believers? No, the unbelieving upon whom the wrath of God is coming. God made it evident to them. They were born with a knowledge that God exists. And yet they turn from it. But you see, there's a great difference between having an innate knowledge of God versus having an intimate knowledge of God. There's all the difference in the world between having an innate knowledge and having an intimate knowledge of God. Everyone in the world has an innate knowledge. But only God's adoptive children can have an intimate knowledge of him. Only God's adopted children can have an intimate knowledge of him. The former we get by virtue of our birth into the human race. The latter comes only by the Spirit, by grace. Through faith. So the unbeliever can spend a lifetime dabbling in religion, and many do, in an attempt to get their arms around the whole concept of God, but all of his degrees and research and postulations about theological truths all amount to nothing until the Holy Spirit reveals God in Christ. Paul says clearly, 1 Corinthians 1, that the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. The world amasses all of its wisdom in order to discover God, and when they get to the end, there's nothing there. It doesn't come to know God through its own wisdom because it cannot come to know God through its own wisdom. In fact, that's what uh, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians is all about. In verse 14, in fact, he summarizes by saying, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. 
He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. What's the they? The scriptures, the truth about God is spiritually appraised, or your version may say discerned. That means you can't know it without the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul goes on to say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And, of course, Jesus says, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. And that's what happened on the day we first believed, isn't it? The Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And we cried out to God in faith as a result. But for the believer, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end. This is merely the beginning. This is birth. It's the new birth. But with birth means we take our first breath of spiritual air. We exhale faith for the very first time. And then for the rest of our life, we grow in our capacity to appreciate and to understand what happened to us on that day and what God has provided for us by that event of grace. Being introduced to God in Christ is only the first step. Now there lies an an eternity before us of getting to know God. And you know what? At the end of eternity, and that's an oxymoron, there is no end of eternity by definition, but just so that we can communicate the mysteries of God here a little bit, at the end of eternity, or at some designated point in eternity, there will still be infinitely more to learn about him. Infinitely more to learn about him. It's an amazing thought. Being introduced to God in Christ is only the first step. And so Paul here says in Ephesians 1 that the Father of glory, he prays, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation for what? He prays that he would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Just underline him so we know what we're talking about here. Knowledge of what? Superlapsarianism? Uh, transubstantiation? Lord, what do you want us to know? Not transubstantiation, that's a Catholic thing. Lord, what do you want us to know? And the answer come back from the Lord Jesus and from the Apostle Paul. Know God. Know Christ. Everything else is of secondary importance. And you can learn all the doctrine in the world. And if your doctrine doesn't lead you to an intimate relationship, a communion with God, then you have nothing of value. You're a hypocrite. You're a whitewashed tomb, Jesus would say. You got the outside of the cup all cleaned up. And you can pour out all all manner of theological wisdom, but you've got no heart. You've got truth with no spirit. You've got mind engaged, but no heart aflame. You're a spiritual dwarf. If we're going to grow in the knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit must grant us some things. The Holy Spirit must give us help. And so Paul prays after the first 14 verses of worshiping God for all of these 
almost unutterable truths, these unspeakable riches that God has poured out on us in Christ. He now prays, oh, I pray to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will understand what I just said. And the implication is, unless the Holy Spirit gives you understanding about the first 14 verses of, of what I just prayed, you won't, you won't ever appreciate it. You won't know what you have. And until you know what you have, you'll never live like God calls you to live. And so he prays that we would be granted the spirit of wisdom. The word for a spirit here is pneuma. And that's the same word that we find in the passage I was referring to earlier in my prayer about the Holy Spirit coming. Spirit, pneuma, breath, pneuma, wind, pneumatas. It all comes from the same root word. And here he says pneuma, the spirit of wisdom. But he's not in reference to the Holy Spirit per se, nor is it referring to the human spirit. Rather, it's referring to a disposition, an influence, or an attitude. That's when we say, that guy is in high spirits today. Jesus uses the term that way in Matthew 5, 3, when he says, blessed are the poor in what? In spirit, in other words, in attitude, he's referring not to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit, but rather to a general disposition or attitude of humility. Blessed is a person who has that kind of attitude about himself and about God. And so as Paul was praying that God would give us a special disposition of wisdom regarding what we have been given in Christ. Now, let me throw in a caveat and say there's no way to get that except by the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to argue that this is the Holy Spirit, I'll jump in, I'll jump on your side of the team. Because you can't get that without the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's job. To give us wisdom. To transform our attitude about ourselves and about Him and about His Word. More than that, more than wisdom, we also need a spirit of revelation. We shy away from this word because we know in the charismatic movement they're always getting new revelations, right? I mean, you always hear, God told me this and God told me that. And I always want to say, how do you know? How do you know it was God? How do you know it wasn't a mood that you're in? How do you know it wasn't the pepperoni that you got from mama's yesterday? How do you know in the subjective realm that that was the Holy Spirit who said something to you? A woman would come in and say, I know a pastor who said he knew a woman who came in and said, the Lord told me to leave my husband. That may have been a spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. We don't get new revelation from God. And so what's he talking about? Well, here he's not speaking of that kind of direct communication from God that the apostles and the the prophets received when they wrote the inspired text of Scripture, but rather the idea here is understanding or knowledge. There are things that God has revealed about himself and his word that are imperative for us to know, but we can't understand them the way we need to without a God-wrought spirit of wisdom and revelation. We need a deep and increasingly rich comprehension and appreciation of who God is and what we've been given in him if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul's saying, I want you to get past the surface. And we all know what that's like, right? You get up in the morning, you have your quiet time. Let's see, what am I on schedule to read today? Well, Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, that's a good passage. And we read the entire passage. 
and we get to the end of chapter 1, and, and we make a, maybe an entry in our journal, or maybe we don't even take the time for that. We say, bless God, praise the Lord, that was pretty neat. And we move along, and we miss it. I've spent 10 messages so far in this passage, and I've skipped stuff. This is so rich. It takes time, but it takes more than time. It takes study, but it takes more than study, because all the time and all the study won't reveal the truth that God wants us to know from the heart. In order to have that, we've got to have something else. To paraphrase something that a friend of mine has said to me a couple of times, the most important person in your quiet time is not you, it's the Holy Spirit. Because it's only the Holy Spirit that can give you understanding into the riches of his truth, because spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. And so Paul prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So try to catch Paul's spirit here. He He's blessing God for every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. And he's trying to help us understand how infinitely blessed we are because of the gracious outpouring of God upon us. And in Paul's mind, the greatest thing that we could ever begin to grasp is the knowledge of God. In fact, he is, in Paul's estimation, our reward. In fact, that's what God told Abraham. I will be your very great reward. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. He is our treasure. He is our all in all. To pray that we might grow in the knowledge of God is to pray the richest blessing one human being can pray for another. God, I pray that by your spirit you would grant them wisdom and revelation that they might know you. Paul knew that, and he demonstrated it all through the New Testament. There's nothing he wanted more for himself than an increasing knowledge of God, right? Philippians 3, 7 through 11, passage that all of us are familiar with. Paul says, whatever, gain, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law-keeping, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from faith on the basis of, uh, from God on the basis of faith, that I may, what? Know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This is what I want for me. And so I pray it for you. There was nothing else more precious or valuable to Paul than growing in his knowledge of God in Christ. And every new discovery was like finding another priceless gem. Every new discovery was like winning the spiritual lottery. There were new discoveries to be made every day. It's an amazing thing what the prophets and the apostles would do. Peter tells us that when they would write the oracles of God, they longed to understand. They would look into these things to understand them. You know what that means? They would write the word of God 
and they, they would study their own writings to try to figure out what they meant. There aren't any human authors that do that today because God is not inspiring his word anymore. But when God inspired his word through these men, they didn't fully comprehend everything that they were putting down on paper. And so they would study these things so that they would know God. And there were new discoveries to be made every day. Growing in the knowledge of God to Paul was the very definition of eternal life because that was the definition of eternal life for Jesus. John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, beloved, conversion to Christ is not the end. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Becoming a Christian is like becoming the heir of a massive estate with a large house full of rooms and stairways and basements and attics surrounded by gardens and woods and trails and lakes and streams and barns and horses and every imaginable amenity that would make life wonderful. And you find that you're the heir to such an estate. And they bring you to the gate and they cut the ribbon and they say, all of this is yours. And then you spend the rest of your life exploring all that belongs to you. That's what Paul wants. Do you not understand the inheritance that you have as an adopted child of God? Why are you hanging out here in the, in the bedroom watching TV when you've got this huge estate of God to discover? Throwing your life away to the pleasures of the world when there is God to discover. Paul prays for us believers because he knows how great are the riches that we have yet to discover and employ. He himself has explored the estate of God already, as it were, and confesses that though he's been doing so for years, he's not yet exhausted all that God has in store for him. There's still the deep riches of God that he has not explored. Perhaps a better way to illustrate it would be to say when we're saved, God plops us into the ocean of his grace and says, it's full of treasure. Go explore. And most of us spend our time snorkeling around at the top. And once in a great while, we'll see something and say, oh, that's neat. But we'll go along for another year or two. And then we'll say, oh, well, that was interesting. And then we'll snorkel along for a little while, and we'll get tired, and we'll complain about how cold the water is and how high the waves are. And Paul's saying, come down here. The treasure's deep. you got to go deep. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you everything you need to go deep because there's treasure beyond your wildest dreams down here. So Paul prays for us. And he knows that he's not exhausted all that God wants for him to discover on this estate, this ocean of blessing. And so he says, it's not as though I have attained, but I press on. The apostle was praying, not that we would merely know about God, but that we might hunger and thirst for a living, vibrant communion 
with God. Real fellowship with God. An intimate relationship with God. He's praying that we would grow in our appreciation of all that God has done for us from before the foundation of the world in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks a penetrating question. He says, if you cannot pray for an hour, why can you not You can talk to neighbors and friends for an hour easily, nay, for hours. Why then is it difficult to speak to God for an hour? There is only one answer. It is because we do not know him. We do not know him sufficiently, and we are not conscious that we are in his presence. That is a simple fact. It's an indictment on us. That God has revealed everything he wants us to know about himself. He's revealed all the treasures and riches of himself in Christ, in his word, and yet we don't know him. We have everything we need to know him, but we don't know him. And because we don't know him, we live impotent. We live impotent and feckless, weak lives. And we wonder why temptation is so strong and wonder why the spirit is so weak. We wonder why victory is so elusive and defeat is so ubiquitous in our lives. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a, a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And by the way, for you young people, you know how old he was when he wrote that? When he preached that? He was 21. How could he say such things? He didn't watch TV. He didn't waste, not that there was TV. He didn't waste his time on things that have no eternal value. And so you want to know how you can pray for me? You want to know how you can pray for my wife and I and our family? Pray that our knowledge of God would grow. Pray that every time I open this book, the Word of God, I would see something new and precious about him so that I might glory in Christ Jesus, so that I might proclaim his excellencies as I'm commanded for his glory and for my ever-increasing joy. I tell you, I found myself praying the scripture for myself and for you all week this week. All week this week. It's added wings to my prayers. It has added words I know that's inconceivable that God could add words to this mouth, but it added words. It added wings. It added strength and power. It gave me a new way to pray for myself and for you. But there's something else I would have you pray about for me and for one another. Paul spells it out in verses 18 and 19. And he writes this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Having a heart that is enlightened by the word of God is crucial. The second thing I would have you pray for is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. The eyes of my heart every day would be enlightened. It's crucial to cultivating a holy life. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, just flip the page. Look at Ephesians 4, especially those of you who are going to sleep. Just flip the page. Look at Ephesians 4. Look at these words, 17 through 19. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you... Walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their what? Mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. You see the mind, the mind, the mind. Because of the hardness of their heart, which for Paul was the same as saying the mind. And they, having become calloused, have given themselves over, look at the result, to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so once again, we see that ordinary understanding is not enough. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the glory that, the glories that are revealed in His Word. Otherwise, we miss them. And by missing them, we miss holiness. True wisdom is not a matter of learning. It's not a matter of book learning. It's not a matter of reading systematic theologies and studying the books of men. As Solomon wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Holy Spirit helps us here by giving us a supernatural faculty that enables us to discover and delight in the awesome riches that are of God in Christ that we are now heirs to, that we are now fellow heirs with Christ regarding. We now own it because he owns it. It is now ours to enjoy because it has always been his to enjoy. The great question is, what do I need to know in order to live as I should in this world? What do I need to know in order to live as I should in this world? Is it best for me to start on a course of reading history to discern the successes and failures of the past of mankind? Many people give themselves to that. Or are the hidden riches of wisdom and understanding in the deep recesses of the mind of man himself? If that's the case, perhaps I should study psychology. And many people do that. Or maybe the secret is to living is bound up in the primordial past, so perhaps I should study paleontology. And many people do that. Is this the way to arrive at true knowledge and understanding? It is not. No, what we need is a greater depth of understanding of what we already possess. We have Christ. We have God. There is nothing else for us because we already have everything. To understand Him and all the rich resources God has provided for us in Him is to have all wisdom and understanding. Everything I need to learn to set my life aright is found in the depths of all that God is for me in Jesus. 
And so what we really need is not another degree from a university, not another theology to explain the complexities of life, not another program to make my life work, not another self-help book to get things under control. No, what we need is the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so that we might fully understand what we already have in Christ. And to help us to understand it in a fresh and new way every single day of our lives. One of the most thrilling experiences of the Christian life is to get up in the morning and crack your Bible open to a familiar passage of Scripture that perhaps you've already got memorized and to look at that thing as I've been looking at uh, chapter 1 over the past 10 weeks and come away time after time after time and say, though I have it memorized, though I have meditated on it, I did not see this before. And you have to raise the question, why do I see it now? Answer, Paul's prayer for you is answered. That God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, has granted you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of your heart were enlightened to the truth of God. So that we would know him. This happens all the time. If you are a student of the word of God, and I don't mean by student, I don't mean someone who goes to church. If you just come to church and listen, you're not a student of the Word of God. You're a professor. You're a hearer. But you are not a student of the Word of God. You are not a disciple. You are not following after. You are not following, as David said, you are not following hard after God. You are not meditating on His Word day and night so that you will be one who is blessed, according to Psalm 1. But if you are one who puts your hope in the word of God, if you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, you know exactly what Paul's talking about. Because every time you open up the word of God, every time you study it earnestly and engage your mind and engage your heart, it's difficult. But every time you do it, you come away saying, I never saw that. Why is such a thing so thrilling? Why does Paul pray about this for the saints in Ephesus? Why do I want you to be praying this for me? Simply because the spirit of wisdom and revelation enlightens our souls to three precious commodities that I desperately need. You want to know what they are? Hope, riches, and power. Hope, Riches and power. See, where are you getting that? Right here. Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing power, greatness of his power toward us who believe? I need those things. You need those things. And Paul's saying, the means for getting those treasures, those precious gifts that you so desperately need in your life is through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit giving you a spirit of wisdom and revelation into the truth of His Word. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to the hope of His calling. 
I tell you, hopelessness in life comes from a sense that you've reached a dead end, does it not? Ever felt hopeless? Ever felt like there's no way out? Life has turned really bad. The bottom has dropped out. The situation offers no way of escape. And the only thing to look forward to is more grief and more pain and more rejection and eventually death. Ever been there? As Job says, my days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Ever felt that way? Ever felt that way? That's why people get depressed. That's why some people kill themselves. But when, by God's grace, you're able to bring the truth of the word of God to bear upon your soul, in those occasions, hope returns, and you're able to face the difficulties ahead, even with joy. How can you do that? How can you have that kind of hope in your life? How can it be that I can travel to Haiti and meet these poor, poor I'm not talking about some kind of emotional or psychological poor. I mean, poverty-stricken people who know more joy and more hope than I ever have. Where does that come from? Where does true hope come from when you're beginning to be tempted toward a sense of hopelessness? Paul says, it is the hope of his calling. It is the hope of his calling. Hope comes from realizing that my present circumstances are not all there is. It's not a dead end. In fact, God chose me from before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose me. Hope comes from realizing that my present circumstances are not all there is. This is not a dead end. In fact, God chose me and created a plan for my life even before the foundation of the world. He laid it all out. And I don't know what the next step is, but I know he's got it planned. And I know my life will never end one second, not one millisecond, before the time he is ordained for me. I tell you, there's hope. Remember our scripture of the week? You remember Jeremiah 29? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to bring you a future and a hope. You say, I don't see it. Maybe you were intended to see it. Maybe your eyes need to be on Him. Maybe God doesn't want you to know how things are going to turn out, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I know I'm walking through. I'm following the shepherd. He's not going to stay here forever. We're going through this valley. I can't see past Him, but I see Him. And so I follow. I faithfully and joyfully follow. I put my trust in Him because I believe He knows the way through the wilderness. And all I have to do, all I have to do is follow. (laughs) 
And so Paul spends the first 14 verses of the book revealing these magnificent truths of election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness, wisdom, and insight, inheritance, and sealing of the Holy Spirit, not just to fill our hearts with theological concepts, but to fill our very souls with hope. Hope! Knowing these truths will help us respond to temptation like David did when he exhorted his own soul with these words, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? You know, he's, he's talking to himself. Soul, why are you in despair? You ever talk to yourself? You ever reasoned with yourself? Don't listen to your heart. Speak truth to your heart. Your heart's lying to you most of the time. It's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Don't listen to your heart. Speak the truth to your heart. David said, why are you so cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God. For I shall again praise him. For the help of his presence. Psalm 62, 5. My soul, wait in silence for God only. In other words, quit murmuring, soul. I hear what you're saying, and it's wrong. Shut up, soul. Sit in silence. I don't want to hear from you anymore. Wait silently for God only, for my hope is in Him. Psalm 135-7, through I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waiting for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Hope. It's the hope of our calling. Knowing the doctrine of God's calling and choosing us is the basis of our hope. So Paul wrote, with the familiar words of Romans 8.28, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the what? Called according to His purpose. It is the hope of His calling. See, how in the world did the martyrs that were sending blankets to, how do they survive? How do the people that we spent the whole service for last week praying, how do those moms and dads, I just got word, I, I chose not to read it this morning, I don't, I don't want another weeping fest, I'll, maybe I'll pass it on to you. But we, we got word back again, and you see on the news all these people who are in despair. And I got an email this week that said, not so with the brothers. They're ministering. They're ministering to others who have lost children, showing the love and the hope that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do they do that? Paul prayed that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know that kind of hope. But more than that, by them we will also have riches. Riches. And obviously the Apostle Paul is not proposing that we would become rich in this world's goods. In fact, Jesus made it clear you can't love money and God. You can't serve God and money because they both make the same demands on your life. And so you can't say to money, I want more, more, more. That's what serving money is. And you can't say to God, I want more of you, you, you. You can't do both. It's not that you shouldn't do both. It's that you can't. You don't have the capacity to do both. 
And so he's not talking about worldly riches here. Rather, he's saying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will enlighten our minds and our hearts to know how very rich we already are in Christ because we've been chosen and predestined and redeemed and enlightened and endowed and sealed. And everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. We are rich. All the resources we need to live for God in this life and to be victorious in our Christian lives has been given to us in Christ. This is important, folks, because fixing our affections on the promised inheritance is a great motivation for holy living. It's a great motivation for holy living. And so Paul writes to the Colossians, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather from men than from men, knowing this. Say, Paul, what's my motivation? For doing my work, he's dealing with a specific area that we'll talk about. If you want to understand the Ephesians, study Colossians, because Paul's running the same thing to two different groups of people. He says, I'm dealing with the issue of work now. I want you to do your work. I want you to work hard. Work heartily as unto the Lord. Why, Paul? Or what's going to motivate me to do that? Knowing this. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. I tell you, there's great motivation. I tell you, the God who's asking you to work is promised to pay. And he will pay super abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine for your faithfulness. Which is an amazing thing, considering faithfulness is even a gift of his grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this again. When men forget the next world and concentrate only on this present life, The world becomes a kind of living hell with confusion and lawlessness and immorality and vice rampant. It's only men who have a complete view of life who really know how to live in the world. The only man who really respects life in this world is a man who knows that this world is only the antechamber to the next world. So if you would live a full and rewarding life in this world, you must start by realizing that the high road to such a life is to consider the world to which you are going, to meditate on the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Meditating on what God has prepared for us in heaven, for all those who love Christ, is not just a distracting pastime for the ultra-religious and useless people of the world. To the contrary, it is the command of God intent on keeping our hearts pure in a world poisoned by sin. And so John, the apostle, writes in his first epistle, uh, 1 John 3, 3, we read, He that has this hope in himself, in him, purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. The lack of true spiritual holiness today is, a, is due in part at least to the fact that we do not spend sufficient time meditating upon the glory that awaits us. We don't think about heaven. We don't think about heaven. The author of Hebrews affirms the same truth. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Most of you have it memorized. He exhorts us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, running the race set before us with endurance. How? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You see, when we talk about meditating on 
our inheritance in the saints, we're not just speaking of heaven and the golden streets and the pearly gates. No, we're talking about the person of Christ who alone gives value to all other things. The streets of gold, the pearly gates, the new Jerusalem, all of that is secondary. And if you think you can enjoy heaven without Christ, no thought of Christ, you don't understand heaven. You don't comprehend it yet. You're still immature in your thinking. Because heaven is about God. Colossians 3.2. You want to make this real practical? Paul's talking to the Colossian believers. He's telling them, people are giving you all kinds of ideas about how to wrestle with sin in your life. Some, some of them are... are, are Exhorting you to give yourselves over to mysticism. And he talks about people who have dreams inflated by their fleshly minds. Don't listen to them. And other people are talking about legalism. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. And then you'll be able to control sin and you'll be pleasing to God. And others are saying, give yourself over to asceticism. Severe treatment of the body. And Paul wraps all of that up and he says this. Verse 23 of chapter 2. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and severe treatment of the body and self-abasement but are of, listen, they are of no value no value against fleshly indulgence. You say, wait a minute. Well, if mysticism and legalism and asceticism aren't helpful in controlling my temptation and my propensity to sin, then Paul, what do you prescribe? Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, this is what you do. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, I think the King James says, set your affections on these things. And not the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. And when Christ who appears, this is your inheritance, when Christ who appears... When he appears, you will also be revealed with him in glory. You set your mind on that. You want to know how to control sin in your life? You get your affections, your mind, your heart focused not on the things of this earth, but on Christ. That's his prescription. You find yourself tempted by some besetting sin, I tell you what you should do. Start worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ for who he has revealed himself to be on your behalf. And you do that for a little while and you know what happens? I'll tell you what your experience will be. The pleasures of sin will start to evaporate. And the pleasures of God will increase. And you'll realize that all of the riches of God are in Christ and bodily form and in him you are, as Paul says, complete. But we don't spend any time thinking about him. We don't spend hardly any time meditating on the truth of what lies before us. All we're concerned about is the next decision and how do I not blow it and how can I get my way and how can I make life more comfortable and how can I increase my education and how can I... And all of that stuff. It's no wonder that we're depressed. And so Paul prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of God so that we have, would have true hope and true riches and finally true power. And with this I close. Paul uses four words here to describe this truth. 
Here they are. Power, dunamis. Working, energia. Strength, kratos. And might, ixkos. Now, let me point out that Paul was not praying that God would give, give us more power for living. He's not praying, God, give them more power. God, they're weak. Give them more power. Give them something they don't have. No. He wants us to come to a deeper and fuller appreciation of the power that we already have in Christ. And what kind of power are we talking about here? Look at verse 20, Ephesians 1. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in heavenly places. Now that's power. It's the power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's the power that saved us. It's the power that's sanctifying us. It's the power that's building the church regardless of the opposition from all the minions of hell. And it's the power that we have to live the way that God has called us to live. He's not praying, God, give them more power. He's saying, Holy Spirit, go and open their eyes. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God so that they will know what they already have in Christ. So that they will live in such a manner that pleases the Lord. You say, I don't know if I can live with this husband anymore. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You have the power of the resurrection to help you be a godly wife in this marriage. You say, I don't, I don't know that I can continue being a mother. Sometimes I want to take my homeschool kids and wring their necks. Yes, you do have the power. You have the strength. You can make it another day. You say, I don't know if I have the power to overcome this stubborn habit. Yes, you do. You have the power of the resurrection. You're just not appreciating it. You're not using it. You've got to use it. All of these things already belong to us. But how many of us really appreciate what we have been given? How many of us turn to the infinite and eternal resources in Christ that we, when we need them to make decisions in our lives? Decisions that would be worthy of our calling. Warren Wiersbe tells the story of how William Randolph Hearst once read of an extremely valuable piece of art, which he decided he must add to his extensive collection. He instructed his agent to scour the galleries of the world to find this masterpiece that he determined that he would purchase at any price. And after many months of painstaking search, the agent reported back that the piece that he was looking for already belonged to him. And it was stored in one of his warehouses and had been there for years. That's what Paul is saying. You already have it. You got it tucked away in a book and you don't appreciate it. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. That God, by his Holy Spirit, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of God. That he would enlighten the eyes of your mind so that you would know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the inheritance. And the other thing, the power, the power by which he rose Jesus from the dead. Do you know these things? Do you employ them in your life every day? 
Want to know how you can pray for me? Pray that for me. Crack your Bible open in the morning, and when you're praying for me, some of you would say, you know, i got a day that I pray for you. I pray for you on Thursday, or I pray for you on Saturday. Some of you know I study on my most intense period of study is on Thursday, and some of you pray on that day. You want to know what to pray for me? Pray this. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And I will pray that for you. And Father,